Hey, hey, hey! Welcome to the Miss Independence Podcast episode for this week. I am so excited for this episode. We are going to be talking with attorney Brian Finley from California about the topic of medical malpractice. But before we get into that, I just want to make a few announcements. The first one is if you have not yet liked our Facebook page or our TikTok or Instagram, I encourage you to go and check out those pages and click the subscribe button to get all the latest updates about this podcast and content that I release throughout the week in between podcast episodes. Anyway, without further ado, I'm excited to get into this episode and we are going to be talking about uh, medical malpractice and what you should do if you find yourself in the unfortunate situation with a medical provider. So let's get started. Do you ever feel like you're unseen or unheard because of your disability? Do you feel isolated and unsupported? Welcome to the Miss Independence Podcast. From questions about chronic illness to doctor's appointments, dating, advocating for yourself, this podcast should provide information about the odds and ends of life for someone with a disability or chronic illness. We will talk about many different topics that I hope you can use as a resource to make your life better. I will share personal stories as well as having guests and experts come and share their own experience and expertise. I am hoping that there can be unfiltered conversations and assumptions that are debunked so that people who do not live this life can be informed about what life with a disability is like. I am really looking forward to interacting with you and hearing your experience. Thank you for listening. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Ms. Independence podcast. I am so excited for today's episode. I have been really fascinated with the topic of medical malpractice. Uh, but before we go any further, I just want to put out a disclaimer that uh, this episode is not intended to provide legal advice to anyone. Any legal advice questions should be uh, directed to a, an attorney in your state that advises in medical malpractice uh, litigation. So with that aside, I want to introduce our guest, Mr. Brian Finley. And um, I'm so excited to have you here, Brian. Thanks, Abby. Really nice uh, to be here. I, um, yeah, like I said, I've been just really um, fascinated by the topic of medical malpractice. I think it is so cool. And definitely as somebody with a disability or chronic illness, um, I think that knowing what our rights are when interacting with medical professionals um, is really important. So I think that um, in today's episode, I kind of just wanted to give our audience uh, over a large overview on what it would be like to... Um, experience uh, medical malpractice as a patient and how we should um, pursue that uh, situation if um, unfortunately it comes about. Um, so can you give us a bit of background about who you are and what your background is? Um, and could you provide a definition of what exactly medical malpractice is? Oh, okay. That, yeah, that's a good one. So uh, my name is Brian Finley. I'm a, an attorney licensed in California uh, right now. I uh, was born actually uh, just outside of uh, Chicago, but I only lived there. It's hard for me to claim Chicago because I only lived there for a couple of years uh, and my family moved down to Georgia. So I was really raised uh, down in the South in Georgia. I went to University of Georgia uh, for undergraduate, which is where I met my wife, Jessa. Um, we moved out after college uh, to San Diego, where uh, 
I got into a school out here on um, a, a pretty decent scholarship, which is can be difficult um, in the in in law school um, to find someone willing to uh, to support somebody who was you know as a first time lawyer in my family kind of an outsider to the industry outsider um, to law but it was something i was really interesting in, interested in i really love to write um and uh I don't, you and i uh, can talk about this abby but i sat there and, and looked at my prospects in um you know journalism or writing the next great american novel and law and i said i think probably law is a better bet for me so uh came out to san diego um been uh, graduated from law school here been working here as an attorney um ever since i've done other kinds of law um but i got uh, kind of magnetized to the medical law practice and personal injury field after um probably after doing a little bit too much um, legal work and it was defense work, but that wasn't really the issue for me. It was legal work, uh, on construction cases and dealing with, uh, condo conversions and stuff that, uh, really just wasn't in my interest area and really wasn't up my alley. So, uh, ended up taking a job with a smaller personal injury and medical malpractice firm. Um, eventually I became a, a partner there, was a partner there at, uh, Mulligan, Benham and Finley for a decade. And just within the last year, I've started my own law firm, Friendly Law, out here in uh, downtown San Diego. And it's been a great year for us so far. Okay, and the, the definition of medical malpractice, right? Yes. Um, so medical malpractice uh, and medical negligence are the same thing. And then the laws out here in California, um, they, they use medical negligence. So I tend to use that a lot because I think some people attribute a higher standard to malpractice than negligence you know they may just be thinking without without really thinking of it they may be thinking well negligence is just kind of not paying attention but malpractice is you know requires some kind of higher level of intent that you, you know, you're being reckless so you really don't care no they're really the same thing um, oh, okay. negligence it's a uh, any kind of preventable medical error um, no matter how small, is technically medical malpractice or, or medical negligence. Okay, that's, that's good to know. Um, and I think that, um, uh, I was gonna, we were gonna talk about standard of care, but that's a little bit later. Uh, that's a really good definition um, to be able to not, even like the most simplest mistakes, um, to be yeah, the preventable. Well, preventable. That's the, the word. Preventable part is really the the key word there because you know you come into the doctor unless you're coming in for your annual exam, something is probably going wrong with you, right? And mm -hmm. and the the soap note that the doctors used to take by hand and now it's basically on a computer screen. Soap stands for subjective, you know, and objective are the first two. That your your subjective complaints. Um, hey, I'm in pain, and your objective complaints uh you know maybe the doctor hits you on the knee with a little bumper and uh you know you need your your your, your uh flexion there at, at the knee um something's off about it so um a lot of times uh, you know you'll get in this situation where an outcome won't be exactly as a person expected or uh, a diagnosis or treatment won't 100 percent fix them 
And mm-hmm. that's not necessarily medical malpractice, right? Um, right. You know, it, it's not a hundred percent perfection is, is not what's required. So it can be, a, the key word is really preventable. It has to be, um, there, there was some way to prevent under the standard of care, some way to prevent whatever happened to you. Um, and if the, the clinician had taken that form of, of treatment, you know, this X, Y, and Z wouldn't have happened. Right, right. And I, and I'm so glad that you brought that up because that was going to be one of my things that I wanted our audience to take home is that it's not just any little mistake. I was kind of getting a, I kind of was putting my foot in my mouth when I was trying to discuss it. But yeah, it, I think that that's really important to just put out there. You can't just see your doctor for anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and what you can see, I think what's important there too is just because something meets the definite definition of medical malpractice, like I said, it can be anything, no matter how small, um, just because of that, it doesn't mean that you have a strong case for a lot of reasons. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people will find if they get into this situation, um, where something has happened and it is dire enough, um, to, to, you know, break that cold sweat and pick up the phone and call a lawyer, um, and talk about it, I think a lot of those people find it is still very difficult to find a medical malpractice lawyer to take your case and to help you, um, you know, sue a healthcare provider or settle a case against the healthcare provider, um, which is usually the response that, you know, we get when we say, hey, we don't think you're going to have a strong suit. You may not win in court. A lot of people will say, you know, I don't want to go to court. I just want to settle the case. But they're kind of two sides of this, the same coin. If you're not going to win in court, um, you're probably not going to get someone to settle your case. Oh, okay, that's good to know. I didn't, I didn't think about it that way. I was kind of assuming that you could um, at least. I mean, you can try that out, but um, yeah, I was kind of thinking that that could be like the most second successful route. But yeah, I get they kind of go together. I guess that makes sense. Uh, what is the most rewarding part of your uh, practicing of medical malpractice? Um, yeah, you know that's a good question, and there's a there's a subjective uh, issue for you, so I won't mm-hmm. I won't belabor it. But um, you know, I think it really comes back to doing the kind of work that you want to do. And um, when I was, you know, I I still remember this turning point of being at my my old law firm and being there really late one night. We were there late often um law is hard but you know in whatever you practice but i remember talking to another associate at the law firm that i was at doing this this construction defect defense work primarily and uh telling her you know this isn't like my jam i can't even build a birdhouse you know for my backyard (laughs) i don't like construction not a handy guy um you know, I got into law because I like to write, and now I'm I'm trying to memorize the the pieces of a window before a deposition of some you know vinyl window engineer. It just wasn't working for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, you know, you need to find something that you can be passionate about. Um, you need to find, um, you know, and she had jumped around a little more in, in her practice than I had at that point. I'd only been a lawyer for three or four years. And uh, she said, you need to find something, you know, where you can really make a big difference um, in, you know, like a person's life. So areas of like personal injury, employment law, um, medical malpractice, um, 
And she was right. Um, and it really did kind of set me down. I probably owe her a royalty or something at a, a certain point, but um, really did set me down a certain path. Um, and so I don't have a super high caseload of people that I represent mm-hmm. in injury cases. And I probably do um, about half of my caseload is medical malpractice cases. Um, but when, you know, when you, when I take on one of those cases, somebody is at the worst point they have ever been in their life. Most of the time they've been, you know, catastrophically injured. They probably can't work. They don't know what they're going to do to, you know, try to, to pay for a lawyer or to, to pay to fight it much less, you know, put food on their table or, or maybe they've, they've lost somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was a, uh, in college, I was a psychology and philosophy major, and I used to think that I kind of threw that away. Um, and I think now I use, you know, kind of draw on that foundation really more than ever with the kind of people I represent because it is very rewarding to take someone and, you know, all I can give someone is, a, a you know, money essentially, but hopefully a feeling of justice and accountability and being heard. And um, the money doesn't hurt either. You take someone who's at a really bad point in their life and you put a million dollars in their bank account and they feel pretty good and there's hugs all around. So, Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's really that the most rewarding part, I guess, is, is making a really big difference for what is relatively a really small amount of people. Right. And especially people who have a disability, well, I guess you don't have to have a disability just of medical malpractice, but I think for people who spend more time in the hospital than the average person, it probably just even means that much more to them because they have to go back to the hospital anyway, kind of thing, probably if they have like a chronic condition. Yeah, you know, a lot of these conditions when it's it's catastrophic enough to make a, uh, you know, a big court case about um, it's they're, they're probably undergoing a lifetime of care. Um, okay. One of the cases I specialize in are birth injury cases where there's something going on, you know, in utero or usually towards the end of, uh, you know, a, a, a labor and delivery process. And there's some sort of malpractice by um, the healthcare providers there that are supposed to be monitoring um, the child in utero and monitoring the labor process. And usually what happens is not enough oxygen gets to the baby or gets into the baby's brain. Mm -hmm. And now you have someone who, you know, hours earlier was, you know, set up to live a normal, healthy human life with their family. And, um, and now they're going to be in a wheelchair and not able to really effectively communicate uh, with people and probably with a cerebral palsy diagnosis for their whole life um, and being cared for and being, being cared for by their family. But, you know, it's one thing to, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you, you think, you know, gosh, I'm going to be cleaning out diapers, um, you know, this morning or, you know, after my after my baby is born. And then by the time that baby is delivered, it dawning on you that you're going to be doing that until that person is 50 years old. It's, a, you know, it's a that's a, a catastrophic injury um, that, that these people have. And they're at a really fragile time in life and they need not only legal help but a lot of times they need to be pointed in the right direction of you know how do we fix this how do we treat this problem who are the you know the doctors that we need to see and so it's it's fulfilling being able to help with things like that as well 
Oh, that is so great. I I relate to that. I mean, I didn't have any birth injuries, but I, as far as like birth stuff, that's that's just pretty cool. Um, because that's like their initial moment of life, you know. So having somebody there to help with that is just amazing. Um, now on the flip side of the coin, uh, what's your uh, what's the most challenging part of medical malpractice? You know the there's probably like positive challenges and negative challenges, right? Where the, mm. the negative ones I imagine are the things that just wipe you out. Um, and I could maybe come out up with that, but I don't like to dwell on, on that part because law is hard. Um, right. and they're not all winners, but I think the, the positive challenges, the kind of good stress that we go through, um, certainly for me is trial. Uh, mm. you know, all of, all of litigation and all of being an attorney that handles cases like this is um, is really preparing for this few weeks. Um, you know, I say, look, I, I meet a client today. It'll be a few weeks, maybe a year and a half, two years from now, we finally get inside a courtroom, um, pulling up a jury and explaining our case to them. That is an, you know, all day long present a case with, you know, uh, graphical displays and interviewing witnesses and cross-examining people and, you know, healthcare providers and all the terms and lingo that goes along with that, um, that, that lasts all day long. And then at, at 4 PM, when the jury is excused to go home and have dinner, that's when the, the preparation starts for tomorrow's presentation, right? That's going right. to also last all day long and the day after that. So, um, you know, that, that is an all encompassing, um, job to have. It's, it's, you know, a big part of the reason why I do this work. I love it. I'm, you know, I'm happy to say I don't end up in trial all the time, uh, because the times that I have ended up in trial, I think I've done very well. Mm -hmm. Um, so that helps when, when you've established a record that if you have to go the full distance that, um, that you will. Right. Right. Uh, but, but uh, so, yeah, as far as challenges, trial is extremely challenging. It's a stress on the body. It's a stress on the mind. And for a lawyer that does this kind of work, and you've been very, very nice. Uh, um, my mother always said, you know, it's tacky to talk about money, but you've been very nice and not talking about kind of the, the compensation part yet. But the vast, vast majority of uh, cases that I take are on contingency, right? right? Which means... Uh, you know, not only do I not get paid for my time for those two years and through the trial, um, and not only do I write checks for the cost in those cases, which can get into the six figures very easily in a medical malpractice case with the depositions you take and court fees and expert witness fees you have to pay. But if we get all the way to the trial and we lose the trial, then all that money is just a write-off, right? So mm -hmm. the attorney never gets paid for their time. They never get paid for their work and uh, they never get paid back for the costs. Now I'm not saying that doesn't pale in comparison to um, the patient ending up getting nothing, but, mm -hmm. but it's a lot of work, you know, on the plaintiff side um, that we do with the risk of not only non-payment, but actually going, you know, into debt mm -hmm. um, on every one of these cases. Right. Yeah, it has to be a um, balance of like, what do you think you, we could win in court? Or, you know, what I mean, it's it is like, it's kind of like gambling in Vegas. 
Sometimes it feels like that. Yeah. It really shouldn't. It <laughs> feels like that. Yeah. I, sorry, that's the only example I could come up with off the top of a hat. Um, well, you know, sometimes yeah. it is a good watermark to judge a case against. If you're talking about, you know, a, you know, maybe, I don't know if I'm setting this up right, but maybe an x-axis and a, and a y-axis in, in the graph is, you know, what's the likelihood we win at all? And then the other axis is, well, if we do win, what's the range of, you know, compensation that we can get for this person? And then the attorney's fee is based as a percentage of that. And sometimes you have to look at those two numbers, you know, if a case is worth, you know, $100,000 and it's a 50-50 shot, at the end of the day, maybe we can get 50000 you know, a reasonable expectation would be to get $50,000 on it um, because it's a, you know, kind of half you win half you lose right and you just wonder well for the attorney if the attorney is going to have to put up thirty thousand dollars in costs and you know say in the equivalent of twenty thousand dollars in time then uh you know you're, you're risking fifty thousand dollars to maybe make fifty thousand dollars and you know in that example the case probably doesn't make sense because now you've spent all the money on costs. You've won fifty thousand dollars, and you've spent it all on on attorneys' fees and on costs. Um, but you know, you have to look at it like: it, is this really better odds than uh, than just going to uh, you know put fifty thousand dollars on a hand of blackjack in Vegas? And if right. it's not, then what you're doing is probably not a good business decision. No, that makes sense. Yeah, and like you said, it's a business decision as well. So. That's a good. That's a good marker, I think. Um, like a good illustration. Um, so I've been, like I said, I've been very, very, very fascinated with this topic recently. And one of the questions I had, um, that uh, I was wondering about, besides the obvious medical aspect of a medical malpractice, what uh makes medical malpractice unique, uh, from personal injury or a wrongful death lawsuit, and how are those cases practiced differently? Yeah, good, good question. Uh, personal injury, one of the big differences in medical malpractice and personal injury cases, and just to be clear, with personal injury, we're usually talking about auto accidents or somebody slips and falls, you know, in a Starbucks or something like that, um, and they've injured themselves. Medical malpractice is usually considered differently than that, even though it's an injury case. But the biggest difference usually, and I, you know, I'm a California attorney, but this happens all over. There's a lot of laws out there in America that apply only to medical malpractice cases. And the stated intent of those laws is to make it difficult to sue healthcare providers. So doctors, mm-hmm. hospitals, nurses, dentists, and, um, to make it, uh, to make it less appealing for attorneys to want to take those cases so that people find have a harder time getting an attorney and if they do um, if the attorney does take the case they have a harder time winning the case and then even if they do win the case there there's caps on the damages that they can get so that the you know the, the downside kind of to the, the healthcare providers and their insurance company is capped and so in in california this year the law is changing but this year we have a $250,000 cap on uh, what's called non-economic damages or pain and suffering. So that's mm-hmm. different from hard medical costs. But it's uh, but if somebody injures you, like the, the example we mentioned before, if, if because of some preventable med- medical error, 
um, your life is snatched away at birth and you will forever um, live a different life. Uh, you know, somebody who is, you know, has a has trouble communicating, maybe has to eat meals through a, you know, through a tube, um, maybe is never able to experience uh, relationships and education and art the same way that a, that an able-bodied person can, um, that's worth at most $250,000. And, and for the amount of money that goes into trying to prove up and investigate a case like that, you know, I've, I've certainly spent more than $250,000 on those kind of birth injury cases. They're some of the most expensive cases out there because mm-hmm. they're so just so medically complex and difficult. But so currently, I believe, and you may have better stats than me, Abby, I know we talked a little bit about this, but that at least, so I won't say currently, but the last time I checked, 35 states uh, had caps on damages like that. Um, Some have overall caps, some have caps on just pain and suffering. Some, you know, may have a different cap for Mm -hmm. wrongful death. and just to be clear, you, you mentioned personal injury, medical malpractice, and wrongful death, Abby, but really wrongful death can be a medical malpractice claim or a personal injury claim. It just means the error or negligence caused death. Oh, okay. So it's just kind of a different term. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Cause I was, um, I just know that that's like another um, case law that I've heard distinguished between personal injury and medical malpractice. So I didn't, I didn't, yeah. I didn't realize it was like the same thing. And well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of the same thing, but it can be it can, wrongful death can result can can be the injury that occurs in any of those kind of injury cases. It is dealt with a little bit differently because it's not the person who was injured, uh, at least as a direct result of medical malpractice or the car crash. Mm-hmm. It's not that person that usually is bringing the claim. Right. Um, usually when you think about wrongful death, you're thinking about the heirs of that person, um, the wife, the children of that person are suing really for a different injury, which is losing their loved one. Right. Um, so there are, there are a different set of rules that apply to it, but it can happen in, in PI cases or medical malpractice cases. Oh, I, I'd say cool, but that's probably not the right word to say, but that's really uh, informative to uh, No, That's really good. Um, okay. So. For the next question, um, we have about five minutes left in this segment, but um, I can start another segment as well. Um, but we have, uh, I wanted to talk about standard uh, standard of care in uh, uh, the medical malpractice. Um, I think people, like we've talked about, assume that you can just sue a doctor or medical professional for any error made. Um, and kind of like your um, basic, like layman's terms, what is it? What is standard of care and what is the actual criteria in general to pursue a medical malpractice case versus a quote unquote honest mistake or natural consequences of having any kind of medical treatment done? And is SOC different uh, or contingent upon where you live? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So standard of care is kind of the foundation on which negligence is built. Um, um, so if we get out of the medical context, even, um, you owe a duty of care, um, to everybody around you. And, you know, that's obvious, say, when you, when you drive a car down the street, you owe a duty to use reasonable care in the operation of that motor motor vehicle. Um, you fail to stop quick enough when you come up to the stop light and slam to the back of somebody's car, 
you've just violated your duty of care, right? Right. So in the medical context, standard of care is really just that duty of care, but it's not a duty of reasonable care. It's a duty of care that uh, applies especially to somebody who is holding themselves out with medical training, right? Mm -hmm. So standard of care um, can really be, you know, I'll give you kind of the, the summary version of the description of it is it's really what um, what other clinicians do, what other healthcare providers do. And, you know, they'll, they'll say in the community, right? So I think there's a little bit to unpack there, but it's, if you're talking about, say, a, a surgical procedure, um, let's talk about like taking somebody's appendix out. Right. There's going to be in San Diego, um, here we have a lot of great healthcare. Here we have a number of um, really good, well-funded hospitals, um, really good doctors at them. There's going to be a general way that these people, you know, uh, diagnose, say, a perforated appendix. Um, you know, what are they using? You know, this kind of imaging or that? They're using, say, like a CT instead of an X-ray. Yes, you're mm -hmm. not doing X-rays to diagnose. Um, you know, like a tissue per perforation because x-rays see bones, right? So, right. Um, and, and I think that's not to get too far down in the weeds, but, you know, this may be an important point with standard of care of, let's say a doctor thinks you might have a perforated appendix and wants to take it out, um, and they don't do any imaging. They're just doing this based on your subjective complaints and the way that you look and you have this pain just below your belly button, and so they go in and an operation to take it out. Mm -hmm. The failure to do a CT scan to check it out uh, prior to going in laparoscopically, maybe that's a violation of the standard of care. I would just say not not having you know dealt with that particular issue at least in some time. I would say also maybe not. Um, maybe based on just subjective and objective complaints, a doctor can go in. He may say it was urgent enough. He didn't want to wait for a CT. Something like that. Um, hmm. if the failure to do that, um, CT imaging, uh, then, you know, let's say once the doctor goes inside laparoscopically or, or opens the patient up, he finds out that, uh, let's say the patient's appendix has already been taken out. Right. Right. And the patient just forgot because it was 30 years ago <laughs> and when they were a minor or something like that. Um, now you've got, you know, a potential medical malpractice case cooking because now um, the person may have a big scar. Maybe they get an infection from mm -hmm. that unnecessary procedure. Maybe, you know, something like that. So, like, I, you know, I think I, I did probably get into the weeds with the CT scan, but it was an interesting, uh, interesting example to me. Um, but you were asking about the standard of care, so I'm trying to unpack a little bit more of that. Um, um, hey, Brian, can we, I have to stop the segment because it only lets me record 30 minutes, but let me stop that. Yeah. And then... Anyway, sorry, we got a little interrupted there. Um, could you kind of just review what you were saying about the standard of care? Sure. Um, yeah, so we were we were just talking about the standard of care. I, you know, I gave a really lazy definition of it so let me let me clear that up a little bit but i i think the definition is still right to talk about but the way that it's officially defined um is that so a healthcare practitioner is going to be negligent if they fail to use the level of skill knowledge and care in diagnosis and treatment that other reasonably careful 
medical practitioners would use in the same or similar circumstances. So mm-hmm. that that level of skill, knowledge, and care is called the standard of care, right? So that's, right. you know, you'll, you'll hear different people describe it different ways because they want to, you know, the defense lawyer may describe it as the minimum standard of care, right? Because they want to set the, the, the floor down really low for what a healthcare provider has to do. And then they can use their judgment above that. Um, but but uh, on the plaintiff side, we call it the standard of care. And But now kind of back to the more lazy definition of like, what really is it uh, besides the legalese words? It's what other reasonably careful healthcare providers do, right? So mm-hmm. back to back to this appendix example, if you're the surgeon, you know, deciding how to, you know, whether to do the imaging or not, whether to do a CT scan before opening this poor person up who doesn't even have an appendix, um, what's going to decide whether uh, you fell below the standard of care and failing to order that CT scan? Well, what do other surgeons do? What do other general surgeons do at the other hospitals around town? And then really, it used to be more of a community standard and a local standard, but truly now all of Western medicine, um, we're all studying the same things in our books and med- medical school. Um, we're all privy to the same research with international journals that are published and now readily available online up to date. And so um, it, it's really, if you're talking about Western medicine, it's the standard of medicine in the West. And there's going to be a general consensus between reasonably careful general surgeons who do this procedure, whether you need to order imaging beforehand or not. Um, And so that, you know, that's in a nutshell, I guess that's the standard of care. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, And then you were kind of saying like it's um, because my second question was, is it contingent upon where you live? But you already kind of answered that and saying that, you know, all doctors are we're kind of moving towards a more... uh, not universal, but like nationwide set of standards. If that's yeah, and well, right. yeah, at least in in Western, I think is important too, and, and we're there already. Mm. Um, you know, so America, but also the UK. You know, also anywhere that that um, that practices Western medicine. Right, that makes sense. Well, off to this fun question: um, What would make a medical malpractice case turn into a criminal case? And have you had any experience of that happening? That is interesting. Um, I'm sure that I've been um, uh, that I've been adjacent to that at least. But you know, a friend of mine had a case actually that was a, uh, a case that had a criminal overlay. But so mm-hmm. to answer your question kind of broadly, um, criminal acts usually require some level of intent. Um, you can be negligent, but a lot of times negligence is, is sussed out in the civil courts, right? With the right. example before you're in your car, you slam into somebody with your car, you were messing with the radio, you were negligent. You're probably not going to jail for that um, unless you were DUI at the same time, right? But it's right. kind of that, so right there, you know, that's that, you upped the level of danger, you know, to at least recklessness in my mind. And now I'm just a, a hobbyist criminal lawyer. So, I don't, you know, I practice in the civil realm. The criminal realm is a completely different courthouse, right? right? And it's a completely different set of lawyers. Uh, but No pun intended, but, yeah. right? <laughs> right. 
they're criminals or? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. About being in a different courthouse. Right. Yeah. Right. So, in the, you know, there's, there's not many people that kind of uh, go back and forth into both, both worlds. But I, I'll right. say, so, if you've got a case that has something more than negligence in there, you've got some kind of intentional wrong in there. So, this case, you know, that I'm thinking of that my friend had uh, was there was a doctor that was selling uh, a bunch of supplements uh, to get people through cancer, mm-hmm. and I think, online and had published books and things like that. These things didn't work, um, but he wanted people to, and he encouraged people to take those supplements and do his method instead of receiving chemotherapy and other uh, Western-type treatments for cancer. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, he's giving out basically sugar pills. Um, It wasn't working and people were dying. So there was a civil case that resulted in a jury trial. Um, where uh, there was a jury verdict against him for $105 million, which is, um, which I just think is an incredible amount for right. a, a single defendant um, case, especially in, in medical malpractice. That's an amazing amount. Um, whether anybody will pay that, I don't, I don't know. Um, because insurance, medical insurance that you would get, professional liability insurance that the doctors get, they're not going to cover you for intentional wrongs. Right. They're not going to cover you, right, for, for this kind of stuff. But so for at least part of the litigation there, and maybe even part of the trial, that doctor who got that verdict against him was in jail mm-hmm. um, because he had been uh, convicted of, uh, you know, criminal fraud with these people. So not just that he was selling them something that wasn't working, but that he knew or he should have known that it wasn't working and, uh, and he lied about it and covered it up. So if that answers your question, I think there's, it's just a, a higher level of intent mm-hmm. uh, would, would make something a crime that might ordinarily be negligence. No, that makes sense. Uh, do you mind now if we kind of talk about navigating uh, a medical malpractice suit? Sure. Um, how long does someone have to file a lawsuit? Um, are there exceptions to the rule? And is it say, the same for minor minors? The limitations? Yeah. Well, I can tell you if so. If um, if you're in, you know, different states, you're going to have different statute of limitation rules because these are all going to be usually governed by by a state procedure. Mm. So, so in California, I can tell you, uh, with personal injury, you have two years uh, from the manifestation of the injury. In medical malpractice, you have one. Okay. So they shorten the statute of limitations. It's not the same for a minor here, so you'd want to check your your state statutes for that too um that's for an adult if you're under the age of six when the malpractice happens and the claim quote unquote accrues Mm -hmm. um then you have until your eighth birthday so with some of these children that are injured at birth they have a good eight years to you know investigate and file their lawsuit and sometimes you need a, a good part of that um to do it because they are so the cases are so medically complex and because of the devel- developmental age, I would assume, as well, right? Right. And if you think about what you're trying to do in a case like that, too, because the pain and suffering of that child through adulthood is limited to this $250,000 amount, to um, to really focus on that case and get the, the child, you know, something that's actually going to support it for all the great medical costs it's going to have in the future, you're, we're having to prognosticate out, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years plus 
what right. is that child's life going to be like? What's his development going to be like? And so you have to do neuropsychological testing. You have to do you know, a lot of brain scans and, and see how the child is developing. And a lot of times you're, you're just not able to do that before at least age three or four. Oh. So we'll investigate those cases for years. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Right, uh, because otherwise, you now the plaintiff has the burden of proof. Mm -hmm. So if I say that my child is going to be brain injured at 20, um, but right now he may just look like a baby, um, you know, I, I have to prove that through some kind of reliable testing that the court's going to accept and let the jury hear about. Um, so, you know, you, if you don't meet that burden of proof, you're not going to get those damages. Right, right. That makes sense. Uh, what are the steps to pursuing and responding to a medical malpractice lawsuit? And what, um, I, I, we've already kind of talked about this and how you get paid, but what if a patient can't afford an attorney? We, I mean, we've already kind of talked about that with the contingency. Yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah. It, and they usually are contingency cases because, you know, the other side is a giant hospital, um, or, you know, an insurance company that's been paid their premiums and they've got. You know, we say they've got more resources than, than God. You know, they got right. more money than God to fight you with yeah. if they really wanted to. So you need, you know, the, the, the ordinary, average ordinary person doesn't, you know, that may be injured by medical malpractice from, you know, trying to get their appendix out and whatever happens. They don't have, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars just sitting around to pay a lawyer and, and pay costs. So it's a lot of contingent practice mm -hmm. on these cases. The laws that uh, that cap patient damages. Uh, actually, in California, they cap the attorney's fees as, as well um, at lower amount than usual injury cases. Again, to try to make less medical malpractice plaintiffs' attorneys is really the stated intent right. so that the insurance premiums for doctors and hospitals will go down. Now, we could debate whether, whether that's actually happened um, in the 50 years that California has had the cap, but maybe a different discussion. But so what are the steps um, in, let's say you, you you think you have a medical malpractice lawsuit and, uh, and you want to investigate that? Um, the first step would be um, trying to get in touch with a good lawyer that practices in this niche area. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, a lot of quote unquote ordinary people don't just have a lawyer on speed dial. But maybe you have had somebody that you liked that handled a car crash case for you or somebody in your family. Maybe you, you know, your family knows a lawyer. And it's a good thing to remember that lawyers know other lawyers. And, mm -hmm. um, and we know each other's reputations. And I don't practice business litigation, but we're trusts and estates, right, or mm -hmm. criminal law. But if you needed a good one right now, Abby, and you needed somebody in in California or in the San Diego area to do any one of those areas. Um, I've got great names for you off, you know, right off the top of my head if you need them right. uh, because I just know of lawyers and their reputations and I may know them personally. So I think that really is, you know, step one is probably try to get a referral or a recommendation to a good lawyer mm -hmm. and actually talk to them about it, talk to their staff about it. And then for us, once, you know, uh, somebody calls, and or you know emails and tells us what they've gotten it seems like they may have something they they you know that that would be good for a lawyer to help them with because at a certain level you know they're just not going to pay attention to a person without a lawyer um mm -hmm. 
usually the next step um, in my cases is the patient will request their own medical records. Okay. Um, and the reason for that, yeah, is that, is that surprising? No, no, that makes sense. Cause, but go ahead. Well, yeah. Can you can you guess why? Cause they uh, for proof, um, so that the other doctor um to like um, I was gonna say yeah, just for like proof. And then, so they're yeah, not yeah. making like a false claim because then you can go back and be like, oh, like, have they complained about this in the past? Or like, do they already have this injury? Right. 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 Those things too. And we'll have the patient actually request it themselves because uh, a patient has the ultimate right to their file from any healthcare provider out there um, under HIPAA. Right. And so within a couple of weeks, under HIPAA, they are supposed to give you your entire medical chart. They're not allowed to charge you any more money than it costs to reproduce it to you. Mm. Um, so if you ask for them digitally, and again, you know, under HIPAA, I mean, these are federal laws now, so I can speak with a little more conviction no matter where our listeners are listening in from. But um, under HIPAA, uh, you know, if, you, if your facility, say the hospital, uses electronic medical records, which, spoiler alert, they all do at this point, right. unless you're talking about some veterinary hospital and um, South Dakota, then uh, if they use medical records, they have to give you the option to get your file electronically. And that's how you want it. So they don't right. try to charge you 75 cents a page um, or something like that. Have you ever requested your medical records, Abby? Um, I think so. Um, yeah, I have one. Yeah, once. Um, yeah. From a hospital yeah, so in Washington. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's yeah. good to see what's in there. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and like I said, they should have it to you within a couple of weeks. Sometimes mm -hmm. they don't do that. And now getting, getting too upset about that is usually not helpful because there is not what's called a private right to action under HIPAA. Okay. Meaning that if a hospital violates HIPAA by refusing to give you your records, and they usually don't do that. It's extremely rare that we get a big problem with that besides just feet dragging and delay. Um, but if they really were to refuse it, the attorney general's general's office could uh, could bring a lawsuit against them for it, but I, as a private lawyer, couldn't bring a lawsuit in your name against them for it because they haven't violated um, any civil law that applies to you. They violated a law, uh, you know, a rule from the federal government. Okay. And the federal government has the right to uh, take them to task for oh, it. Oh, that so, makes sense. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so, but so when when the facility gets a request from a patient to request their medical records, that just goes straight to the medical records department. They put your records, hopefully, you know, in some digital format, and they send them out to you for a very small amount of money. And then that person, the patient, will get them to the lawyer. And hopefully now they have an electronic copy so they can get them to a few lawyers if they want, you know, a second opinion or a third opinion. Right. And uh, that is a much better system I have found than for me to write a letter to every facility for every person that calls my office and try to get medical records because as soon as they see there's a lawyer now requesting medical records well who's this lawyer oh he practices medical malpractice maybe these records need to go to our risk management department Ooh. maybe they need to go to our lawyers before we turn them over we want to take a look at them mm -hmm. um and so you never know what's missing what you know you're maybe not seeing what somebody else is scared of and it takes a lot longer 
So I, I find it's really helpful to have the patient get their own records. That is a, that's a really, first. yeah, that's a really good piece of advice, I think, for our listeners. Um, so yeah, make sure you guys know how to access your records. And yeah, yeah, that's really, yeah. Yeah, and if, if I don't know the facility, I usually tell people in, in requesting their medical records, and you can do it right now. You don't have to wait till you you know think something's wrong or something's going to be changed or something. You can do it right now. It usually costs less than twenty dollars, even from a hospital for years of records, just because they can only bill you as much as it costs to drag and drop the PDF onto the the DVD. Right. Um, but. It, the way to, to do it usually just starts with either a Google search of records department for XYZ hospital or, uh, or a call to, you know, if you have a business card, if you see a number online, if you've got a number for, you know, any clinic or any doctor, call them up and say, who do I get in touch with to get to your records department? Mm. Um, right. Yeah. And it's usually, you know, you fill out one form and um, in, in a couple of weeks, you've, you've got all your medical records in hand. That's crazy. Yeah. I remember when I requested mine from Seattle, there was like hundreds of pages, hundreds of pages. So, but that was of course back in 1996. So, yeah. you know, definitely digital. Well, it's, yeah. With, with digital records, I don't think that there's any fewer records now. I think it's actually gone up because the amount of templates they use and check boxes and things like that and things that get repeated mm-hmm. onto each record. Um, is a lot. So there's a lot of noise on records now that didn't used to be there, but at least we don't usually have to go trying to decipher handwriting of surgeons anymore with their post-op notes. Right. Uh, So after you give the records to your attorney, uh, what happens after that? Yeah, so at this point, there's, you know, there's no um, attorney-client relationship as far as the attorney is representing you in a claim or the attorney is saying, that you have a good case or not. Mm-hmm. Um, there is attorney-client, you know, all, all attorney-client privilege applies to prospective clients. So certainly if you call an attorney and you're discussing this and getting medical records and he's looking through them, he's bound to confidentiality um, okay. for that. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that. And I can't imagine a state where that wouldn't be the law, but it's certainly the law in, in California that we have to keep those kind of conversations for prospective clients, confidential as well as regular clients. But so I think what's important is we need as medical malpractice practitioners, we really need those medical records as basically step one in trying to figure out if there's a claim here, because there's always little surprises. Um, and sometimes that is based on, you know, a patient may, um, have not understood exactly what happened um and during their procedure maybe they were a lot of times you know if you're talking about mom being in labor or somebody undergoing uh, an appendix surgery um these people are under anesthesia they're not you know they're not even aware of everything that's going on in the room so we'll find a lot of holes get plugged up there we'll have the exact terms um of whatever disease process it is right it's it's one thing to say hey i've been going to regular checkups and all of a sudden I got diagnosed with stage four cancer, doesn't it seem, Brian, like, you know, something was done wrong, they didn't catch it, and now it's terminal. Well, maybe, maybe not. The first question I usually ask is, what's the, you know, what's the name of the cancer? And, right. you know, it probably six or seven times out of ten, the person can't tell me with any certainty what the exact 
name of, of the cancer is. And some are fast growing and some are slow going and some are you know, more aggressive than others. And so all of that we find out pretty definitively in the records. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, usually there's, I don't think there's a lot of subterfuge going on in being that, you know, someone's gone, the surgeon gone in and changed a bunch of records or something like that. Because most people these days, when you're treated for a serious condition, you're not seeing just one doctor, you're seeing a doctor, you're seeing a nurse, you're seeing, you know, maybe they call her a consult uh, from an infectious disease doctor or um, some other kind of specialty. There's going to be a radiologist that's reading the imaging that's talking about whether you have an appendix or whether you have cancer or, mm-hmm. or what you have. And so the amount of coordination, the radiologists are usually off site um, these days. They have a computer and they're, you know, they're getting images to their home. Um, and they may be even in a different state sometimes, and then they're reviewing it and sending it back. So the amount of coordination that would need to be there for there to be like a united front conspiracy against you to try to cover up somebody's medical malpractice, it's usually just not there if it's even possible, right? Because if, uh, you have all these doctors all looking at a, a different piece of the puzzle and potentially coming to the same conclusion um, that, you know, you you have this disease or you don't or when it started so we get a lot of answers there Mm -hmm. um i think you know one of the issues that i hear from patients a lot of times that i guess goes along with what i was saying is um abby it's you know they they say well you want the medical records and you're going to kind of base your decision on whether there's a case off that who are they created by right the doctor, right? Well, the, right. Yeah. <laughs> They're created by potential defendants. Like, are they just covering them for themselves? But so, I mean, that kind of goes to what I was just saying. It's that it usually doesn't happen like that. Um, but that's that's a very important step. And I may have talked to the people um, involved, you know, the, the patient a few times by the time we get those records and we get the record review done. But no good medical malpractice lawyer is going to make any decision on whether they think they can help a patient or not with a uh, with with a legal claim before they do a thorough review of the medical records and find out exactly what is going on. That makes sense, right? And they don't want to like commit to anything, right? Yeah, right. Because when you know when a contingency lawyer you know commits, it's you know when I when I take on a case, it's like I'm I'm taking it on, and if it settles tomorrow after my first phone call to you know the the insurance adjuster for the other side then great everybody's happy if it goes all if we litigate this thing to the hill and two years it goes to trial i'm going to show up you know day one of that trial ready to go so we're going to be partners for years potentially if once we actually sign up and i think you you can't run a a a litigation law firm in, in any other way especially contingent practice because um, you get a reputation with the other side if you if you try to settle a case and they don't do it and then you just drop it, um, they they notice that on the next case. Right, right. Yeah, you probably get like a cycle of uh, the same people you're working with, or like cycle through. Right. Um, right. Awesome. I think in the next segment, can we talk a little bit about um, in the off chance that you do go to trial? Can we just talk about that for a little bit and maybe? Um, sure. Okay. Perfect. So yeah, going from the discovery phase, um, what uh, what would you advise a patient to uh, aside from their medical records? What else would you want documentation on as a lawyer? 
Yeah, so, well, if you mean, like, once we get into litigation, so, like, in the timeline of a case, we're now at the point where, well, I've reviewed the medical records as a lawyer, I'm coming back to the family, and I say, I think something was done wrong here, right? Mm -hmm. And then, just to skip over it, uh, quickly because I'm, I'm a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. Usually the first thing we do before we even think about filing a case then is go out to the correct medical specialty and hire an expert to review those records like I did mm -hmm. and tell us, you know, so if it's a surgery case, we'll get that appendix surgeon. Uh, we'll get an expert level guy. We'll send out everything and we'll say, hey, was there a violation of the standard of care here? Is there, you know, the other elements that we need, causation and uh, uh, kind of a tie causation is like a tie to the damages or the injury and uh if so now we're saying okay we're gonna we're gonna basically have to file suit on this case we'd love to be able to settle it but uh it's very rare for medical malpractice cases um at least in california to settle mm -hmm. um, so that's usually a very small idea um if you do bother to try to settle it but so just to be clear on where we are so now we've we filed a lawsuit in the state of California. Okay, right. right. And now we're, we're, so once you file a lawsuit, you get into, and, and the other side answers it. They don't just try to throw you out of court and say, mm -hmm. you know, you know, you're, you're out to lunch. Right. Uh, now you enter discovery and we're going to be in the discovery phase all the way through trial. And that may be in a medical malpractice case that may easily be two months or uh, 18 months to two years. Here. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, what else, what else are we looking for? What else do we want to prove? Medical records are key. And so medical records keeping updated on treatment as it's happening. But also, I think you, you kind of touched on this before, Abby, past medical records and using those to show that um, whatever is happening now is different than the person's natural history in the past. You know, this is a, it's a, a new uh, labral tear at their hip or, you know, this is a new, um, you know, that the headaches that they're experiencing or the, the eyes being unable to focus, that's not something they've been complaining about chronically for the last five years. That was a new onset symptom after whatever surgery from Dr. X, right? Right. So we want all that information. Um, and the next big category of information that we want are depositions. Okay. So deposition is where, you know, it's kind of like, testimony and trial because it is under oath but instead of sitting there in front of a judge and jury asking the person questions live you're now let's say with the defendant surgeon um we'll send out a notice of deposition uh to him and his attorney and they'll have to appear um just in a conference room with a court reporter there typing down a transcript his attorney will be there i'll be there as the plaintiff's attorney the, the patient themselves usually does not show up. They actually have a right to in California, um, but I don't find that it's helpful to have no. uh, a person who's that emotionally invested <laughs> attending depositions and, and kind of being there to be on display. Mm -hmm. um, but so it, it, that's an opportunity to interrogate the defendant under oath. And then, of course, they have the opportunity to do it. Um, they, their attorney does it to uh, the patient as well, to our mm -hmm. client. Um, we'll set a different day for that. And you can ask a bunch of questions. You can present them with medical records and ask them questions about it. And it's all going to be taken down in a transcript. And, and one of the, the main purposes for that is you don't want when that 
person takes the stand for the first time during the trial in front of the judge and the jury who's going to decide the case, you don't want to have have no idea of what they're going to say. You you, so you're asking them kind of practice questions of, uh, you know, are you familiar with, you know, how to do the procedure? How did you do the procedure? You know, did um, was anybody else in the room? You want to you want to get all the answers to this information so that you can put together a cross exam once you get to trial. Mm, uh, right. And, yeah, and and so it may not be just. Often it's not just the defendant who's involved in the case, uh, but it may be you, you may want the depositions of other treating physicians as well, just to get everybody's testimony on the record because um, you know there's a little concept called hearsay in the law that's mm -hmm. pretty you know easily understood i think if you just think of um you know you heard it out of court somewhere and then you try to say it in court mm -hmm. well that's not good evidence um, yeah. just because you know we found that you know having somebody come to court and be like well i heard this person say um x y and z you know it's uh, it's 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 uh, not super reliable so medical records themselves are hearsay Oh, uh, so, interesting. Right. I would okay. Right, so you can't just now. Now there's exceptions and there's ways that you can do things to get agreements with the other side, and and um, you know there's different hearsay rules by state. But in general, anything written down on a piece of paper is going to be hearsay unless um, it's signed under penalty of perjury right. under the laws in in your state. Um, it's not really going to, it's not testimony. So it's not, so it's, so it's hearsay. Um, mm -hmm. so if you have good records, um, sometimes if you got bad ones too, but if you have good records from the person who treated your patient after this other surgeon, or maybe before mm -hmm. that helps support the case, you may want to send those people a subpoena as friendly as possible and get them to give some testimony under oath so that you can either use that testimony then at trial and enter it in because it is signed under penalty of perjury. Uh, or you can call that person to trial and you assume that they're going to say the same things that they already said under oath. Right, right. Well, that's so a whole slew of depositions. Right. So it's the discovery phase and then deposition and then you would go up to trial. Right. Um, mm. So the last part, at least in California, um, the last part of the discovery phase is expert discovery. Okay. So all the experts that we've hired on our side, you know, to say the surgery was done wrong and what the damages are going to be and the neuropsychologist testimony about, um, you know, I've tested this person, this child and 20 years in the future, they're, you know, going to be, they're likely going to have, you know, this kind of picture and then a vocational specialist may get up there and say, um, yeah, this person is unlikely to work in this kind of a job, even though we would have expected them to be able to do it before. An economist is going to come up for our side and say, um, you know, all of this work loss and all of this care in the future, in present day dollars, that's worth X. Um, all of those people are going to get together um, on our side. All of them are going to get together on the defense side. They're all going to exchange their information. And uh, we're going to take depositions of the experts now, uh, which gets pretty expensive because you have to pay them their, you know, a few hundred dollar to a few thousand dollar an hour fee for their time to take their deposition. Right. But after that is when trial actually begins in earnest. Okay. Um. Could you? Yeah. Do you mind if we like move on to trial and kind of just give me uh, um, some insight on what trials like for medical malpractice? Sure. Perfect. 
Sure. So trial in a case like we're describing, like a medical malpractice, you know, surgical case would be, um, it begins with voir dire. Now you're going to pronounce that different back in the South where I'm from, I think it's voir dire or <laughs> I don't know. They, every, every like dialect has their own spin on it, but right. you mostly here in California and hear voir dire. And, uh, that just means being able to question the jury. So, you know, you're going to come in, you're going to begin with that, really have a, you know, a, a big panel of tens of jurors and you get to ask them questions that try to decide whether this is the right case for them. You know, is mm-hmm. your, is your wife a surgeon of this specialty? You know, are you a surgeon? Are you a medical malpractice lawyer plaintiff for defense? Right. If so, this might not be the right case for you, right? Um, no. Um, do you have a... Do you, do you just have a, a very firmly held belief that all lawyers are scumbags and you shouldn't be able to bring an injury lawsuit at all because all lawyers, are, all injury lawyers are liars. Or on the Maybe opposite. Is, oh, sorry. I was going to say, or on the opposite side, all doctors are saints. Yeah. 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 And, you know, a lot of people, uh, I think a lot of people have both of those opinions. You know? right, like, right. Lawyers are liars and all healthcare practitioners, especially nurses, really, are mm-hmm. uh our saints. And so it's, you know, it can be difficult to, to start digging yourself out of that hole, but, but we get to ask some questions of the jury and, and see if it's the right case for them. There's, you can have jurors dismissed for cause. Um, if they really just aren't going to be able to participate objectively, um, mm-hmm. in reaching a fair result and weighing just the evidence that comes out in the case and not what their wife at home, who is also a surgeon tells them on the side. Um, so for cause, you can get people excused. You can you have your own challenges of a few people um, that you just went off for various reasons. They can't be based on any kind of discriminatory criteria. But otherwise, if you just don't like the vibe of juror number three, you can dismiss juror number three. Um, okay. And you get just a few of those. Um, and then the rest of the trial is really, in, in my mind, I think of it as it's putting up witnesses, right? right. Very little of trial involves um, presenting a document to the jury. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's, you know, there'll be a big screen and the witnesses will be questioned about documents. But again, the documents themselves um, are, are generally not great evidence. And the jury, you know, doesn't want to sit there and read them to themselves. Right. You want to put on a witness that can explain um, what's going on in the procedure. You want to put on, you know, your experts. It's a series of plaintiff goes first, takes a few days, puts all um, plaintiff's experts on the stand, questions them, tries to get all the documents you need into evidence, all the testimony you need, and then plaintiff rests. Then the defendant gets up and puts on their case. They have all their experts on their side. There's never any shortage of say surgeons in this particular example case um, that are willing to defend just about any conduct uh, by other surgeons as meeting the standard of care. Because it's um, ca- kind of like, well, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but like one, they have each other's backs. That's what I'll say. Right. Yeah. 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 They, they, and, and it's not all of them. And certainly on, mm-hmm. on our side, you know, I know some great surgeons who will look at cases objectively and tell me sometimes, you know, Brian, this looks like a bad result, you know, mm-hmm. with an infection or something like that. But the surgeon didn't do anything below the standard of care. And sometimes they'll say, OK, something was done wrong here. Mm-hmm. And they realize just like we do with these cases, 
um, you know, I know that the public doesn't necessarily want to see, you know, big trials in every case where people are complaining about being injured and wearing neck braces and asking for millions of dollars and they're suing doctors and maybe ruining their careers. The problem is that is the way the system is set up. And if that, Mm -hmm. if the courts are, are the answer to somebody who's been medically malpracticed and without that, you know, ability to get a, a verdict from a jury, um, without the ability to, to, to bring a lawsuit or bring a claim, they don't have anything. You know, they, right. they maybe have Medicaid programs um, for the poor, but they could be, you know, they could be, you know, someone with a catastrophic injury can be homeless easily and without good medical care for the rest of their lives for something that wasn't their fault. Um, and so uh, I, I was trying to kind of briefly get through trial, but that's basically what trial is, is putting up a series of witnesses, letting them speak to the jury, letting, letting them show the jury things. And then the jury will go back and deliberate and answer questions on a verdict form when lose and if, if uh, the patient won, then for how much. Right. And do uh, juries uh, for medical malpractice have to be unanimous or is it just a popular, uh, popular vote? Yeah, so that's probably going to vary state by state. Oh, okay. In in California state court, um, it's nine out of twelve, so it does okay. not have to be unanimous. You just need nine on every question. So on every, be, oh, know, okay. Was there a breach of the standard of care? You need at least nine to say yes to get through to the next question. You know how much money is appropriate to give? You need at least nine agreeing on the same amount. Mm-hmm. Um. In federal court here, if you bring the same case involving, say, a federal um, healthcare practitioner on a Navy base or something like that here in San Diego, right? Um, yeah, you need a, a unanimous jury in that oh. instance. So I think state by state as well, um, you're, you're going to get some differences. Oh, okay. Why does it have to be federal for unanimous? Or sorry, why does it have to be unanimous for a federal? Because uh, you'll be in in the federal courthouse. Oh, okay, so and, it's just a different yeah, standard. So, yeah, so they just have different um, rules of procedure than uh, than the state courts do. Oh, okay. Um, so I know we've already talked about caps, but could we kind of just address that real quick about the two hundred fifty thousand dollars in caps and how uh, California is going to try to maybe change that and what that looks like? Yeah, this is. It's really exciting for us. Like I said, mm-hmm. I, I practiced for about uh, for for a decade with uh, my old partners, who were about twenty years ahead of me when I joined their firm as you know, kind of the junior associate and junior partner. But you know, these laws, this damage cap in California, and it was the first or one of the first in the nation uh, for two hundred fifty thousand dollars for non-economic damages. Mm-hmm. That was put in place back in nineteen seventy-five. Which, if you can believe it was before I was born. Oh. Um, so mm-hmm. for my entire life and for my partner's entire careers, nearly 50 years, this uh, this law has been in place at the same dollar amount, right? So right. as inflation inflation goes up, um, you know, the, the dollar amount stays the same every year. And it really made it difficult for patients to try to find a lawyer. And I just to, to illustrate that a little bit, you know, if you know a big case, um, the last case I had that went to trial, we spent about $230,000 in cost to get it all the way through a four-week trial. Oh, wow. Uh, a wrongful death case of a, a, a gentleman in a hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
And that wasn't attorney's fees. That was just $230,000 in expert witness fees and court fees and things like that over the course of a few years of litigation and uh, and a trial. Mm -hmm. So if you know, if you have a case that comes in that's um, mostly pain and suffering, um, Mm -hmm. say like a wrongful death case of somebody who was maybe older um, or maybe much younger, um, where it's difficult to prove that any any amount of money they were going to make was going to come to you. And it's mm-hmm. really just about your pain and suffering or their pain and suffering from what may be a catastrophic injury, but they can still work. Well, that's what's called a 250 case here in California. And there's pretty much no lawyer that knows what they're doing in medical malpractice that can take a case like that, except in very rare circumstances, because they know that could be the one where you can go to trial on it, like I did in my $230,000 cost case, and spend that much in cost. And then even if you win, you've lost. Right. There's there's nothing left for the patient at the end of the day. Mm. Um, so you know those are cases are probably, even if you win, you lose cases. So they don't even get looked at uh, by attorneys. So the good news mm. is that that is changing. Um, there was, uh, there's been... A lot of work by consumer attorneys in California out here and by a lawyer named uh, Nick Rowley mm-hmm. um, and by, um, you know, a, a, a few, a handful of people in the legislature um, that have done a, a really phenomenal job in actually changing this uh, through the legislature. And part of the ways that they did that were because we're proposition happy up here, you know, as far as like <laughs> signatures and putting things on the ballot. But part of the reason, part of the way that they did that was. Um, putting forth ballot propositions, and and I think there was a threat of um, this is going to, you know, this is going to work out worse for the the medical insurance industry and the medical industry if you just let the voters have to decide on, you know, what gets the most signatures eventually instead of reaching a deal. So everybody came together, the plaintiffs, lawyers, and Consumer Watchdogs Association, you know, the Democrats, the Republicans, the, um, you know, the healthcare insurers, pretty much all of them were on board, the medical and hospital associations here in California that have enormous power, mm-hmm. um, all came on board and pushed through um, a raising of those caps. So it's not going to go up astronomically, but uh, the $250,000 cap is going to change to a $350,000 cap next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's going to go up about $40,000 a year after that. You also have the ability to stack those caps. Meaning? Uh, and you yeah, you can't see my hands, and I'm making air quotes. And that just means um, for, you know, in a lot of cases, two, there may be two different kinds of medical providers um, that uh, have something to do with an injury. Um, so, you know, maybe a nurse who's an employee of the hospital and a doctor who's an independent contractor. If you have two independent entities like that that are both responsible, now you have two caps, 350 plus 350 That's good. equals 7000 $700,000 cap. Right. So, um, so what it means is, and, and you can even stack three in, in certain situations where you have medical transport involved or some kind of unaffiliated third entity. And we'll see, you know, there's going to be litigation about what all of these terms mean that mm-hmm. put into this new bill that everybody agreed on. But we have that for wrongful death cases that you rightfully kind of singled out before. A wrongful death caused by medical malpractice cases, the cap goes up next year to $500,000, and that's stackable as well. Um, and then all of these caps are going to gonna continue going up over the next 10 years. 
by about $40,000 a year. Okay. And then they're going to be adjusted for inflation, which they should have done with the original law. We wouldn't be in this position. Exactly. Um, yes. But uh, back in 75, but these people, you know, what if they didn't know how to run the world before you and I were born, Abby. So, oh, exactly. Yeah. See, see we, yeah. we just didn't come along yet. <laughs> yeah. So it'll have like a 2% right. um, cost of living adjustment, I guess you could call it, mm-hmm. after that. Um, so I don't know how much more I'm going to be practicing after the next 10 years, but I know at least based on current law that this situation is going to continue to get better for plaintiffs um, over and above, you know, the cost of inflation uh, over Mm -hmm. the next decade of my practice. And I'm super happy for them because um, one, um, this means that we can help more people because all those people with potential 250 cases that may get a second look now those people likely never found a lawyer to take their case. Right. They couldn't speak truth to power. They got no compensation for it. And they just had to, you know, deal with, with their injury that they never should have had. So they'll get an insurance payout for that. Um, and it's coming from insurance companies with, again, more money than God. So I wouldn't feel bad for the insurance companies. No. They're on the top of the, the <laughs> Forbes 500 list. Yes. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't worry about them. Um, and the you know i think the the evidence that uh having having higher caps or or or, uh, i'm sorry having lower caps you know means that medical malpractice insurance prices for doctors go down like their premiums will go down that hasn't really played out in any of these states that have enacted caps it's just enriched the insurers you can tell i have a biased point of view now (laughs) if i've I've hidden it before but um you know i think insurance exists to pay this you know professional liability insurance exists to pay these people where there's been preventable medical errors it's the third leading cause of death in the united states right um this is we we know this is a this is happening and it's happening on a large scale. And then the insurance companies are, you know, taking moves to make sure they don't have to pay out. Um, what I think is probably the majority of, uh, of these claims, at least by number of, of patients, because they have these smaller things happen and they're denied any compensation because of these gaps. So, um, so there, there are brighter times ahead, uh, for, for patients in California. That is amazing. Uh, Okay, well, I think we're almost coming to an end for this episode, but I do have a few more questions. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it. Okay. Um, under what circumstances would a physician or other medical provider lose their license for losing, oh, yeah, for losing a medical malpractice lawsuit, or do the insurance rates just increase? Yeah, I, I mean, I missed the last part. Or what you said, or will their insurance rates just Increase. increase yeah 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 so there's a governing body in every state um here it's the california medical board that governs doctors and it's going to be different for nurses and it's going to be different for dentists uh, but just talking about doctors it's the california medical board mm-hmm. and they will uh they, they require any verdict or settlement even uh by a doctor that's licensed by them that is, uh, you know, there's more rules in this, but generally the shorthand is to think of it as $30,000 or more uh, is a reportable event. Uh, if you settle oh. a case as a doctor for a, a $30,000 or more, you have to report it to the medical board. Okay. And that is supposed to be public information. You should be able to find it on the California Medical Board website. 
mm-hmm. um, or you know, or through freedom of information uh, requests. Sometimes I notice that it's not on there. I wonder, did the doctor, you know, for cases I've worked on, and I think, did the doctor just not report it? Is the medical board just dragging their feet because they are made, you know, by doctors for doctors? Uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. but uh, they do. Uh, investigate those claims sometimes I often after cases are over they'll wait for the civil case to kind of wind through and uh, once the case is over they'll send a letter to me asking for all depositions and medical records on the case and then they'll do their own investigation in the state of California and it's probably the same in um, the majority of states not every state it's going to be the attorney general's office for the state of California that is then going to act as basically the, enfor- the enforcement arm for the California Medical Board. Okay. And bring in what's called an administrative action against their license. So that's kind of like a mini trial that just happens not really in the public courts, but in, you know, the medical board courts. Right. And in that, you know, there'll be the same thing. There'll be, you know, interviews done. There'll be medical records reviewed. There'll be uh, experts supporting each side of the case. And the medical board will basically be prosecuting them and recommending that they, you know, all the way up from, you know, just uh, censured or admonished to maybe they need to take a class to, you know, maybe they need uh, a proctor or somebody monitoring them in surgeries for the next period of time. Or maybe they need to, uh, you know, have their license suspended or revoked. Right. I can tell you that. All of that is, is pretty rare. And so what they're really looking for is gross negligence and gross deviations from the standard of care that show that someone, you know, if they're, if they're really going to suspend a license or put somebody on probation, they're looking for something, you know, someone that's not fit to be a doctor. Um, right, right. Yeah, or if they're they're uh, yanking their license, rather, is what I meant to say, rather than just suspension of probation. Um, it is very difficult to get any action through the medical board, I have found. Um, we have much better results as civil attorneys convincing a jury finally after a couple of weeks that a surgeon did a procedure wrong, a surgeon the jury maybe have never heard of. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a lot better results with that and convincing the medical board that a doctor just needs to lose their license for good. Right. No, that, I mean, that makes sense. You know, they are, like we've talked about uh, before, they are kind of, you know, really high regarded professions. So, um, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, for our last questions, last question, and I can't believe this is the last question, but um, do you have, before we wrap up this episode, can you give us some final thoughts for, for people listening to this episode and our audience on medical malpractice litigation and it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh my god. <laughs> I will be editing that out. Okay. Yeah. I will be editing that out. Um could you um give us a little bit more of any final thoughts you have wanna wanna leave with our audience? Yeah, you know, I'd say anybody that's been touched by this, uh medical malpractice, if something's happened to a loved one, something happened to them. And it's really easy, I bet, to feel uh, powerless in that kind of situation because even where something pretty significant could happen to you, say in in California or any of these states where there's damage caps, um, the fact that a lawyer may be telling you 
this is not a case that's suitable, you know, to hire a lawyer and bring a lawsuit about. The fact that a lawyer is telling you you don't really have a case doesn't necessarily mean that something wasn't done wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, you know, it's a different kind of, it's a different ballpark that we have to play in in the legal realm of trying to figure out are we going to be able to prove this to a jury someday um, and then can we convince the other side if we want to settle it that we're going to be able to do that and then if we are able to do it is there likely going to be something that's worth it for you um, out of you know the next year and a half two years of your life going through this reliving it Um, and if we can answer that question yes then then you probably are going to be able to find a lawyer um, about all those questions, yes. But but if not, and there's so many cases with, that are in these damage cap state, states where, where it just doesn't make economic sense mm. to try to bring a lawsuit and fight it that way, then, you know, I just, number one, be persistent with lawyers and try to reach out to a few of them and don't just accept the, the first one and try to ask that first one if they say, I can't help you. You know, do you know somebody that might take these kind of cases mm-hmm. from time to time? I know people that'll do um, the, the, you know, it's usually the smaller cases that just don't make sense. If you have a case that's, that's large enough, you can usually find some firm that's well healed enough to fund it. But, um, but if that fails and you're still stuck with this harm that happened to you and you, you have been now, you know, you're, you're, your, your right to a jury trial, right? Mm-hmm. Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial has been taken away, I think, by some of the laws in these states because um, they've, they've made it so it's economically infeasible for you to, to try to sue a doctor. Right. Just remember, there are these state licensing boards that you can find usually with a Google search, and you can usually make a complaint right online um, to um, at least have that taxpayer-funded ability to try to hold somebody accountable and try to get justice. And when people look at that idea and they say, oh, you know, I don't want to, that's not going to, you know, get anything for me or that's not, they're not really going to do anything. Well, the, you know, your complaint may be the one that breaks the camel's back and has them finally investigate some doctor that they've gotten, you know, 16 complaints on. Or, mm-hmm. you know, your, your complaint may be the, um, the one that's egregious enough that um, the attorney general's office of your state or whoever is the enforcement arm of your state takes up an investigation. Um, but I just I, I wouldn't let them slide just because a civil lawsuit doesn't make sense because civil lawsuits are not the not the ultimate answer sometimes. Okay, that's great. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on. I had such a fun time this last. Uh, hour and a half and I learned a lot so thank you for coming on the podcast thanks thanks for inviting me Abby it was it was fun yeah fun okay thank you guys for listening to my episode and we will see you next week